tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello. I don't know about you, but where I am, it's pretty gray. And I'm sure you've heard me say it because I say it constantly at this time of year. February is the longest month of the year. It starts somewhere in April and goes, or starts somewhere in January and goes right through till April, at least in the Midwest. So <laughs> things are beige out there, but. I botched the delivery. The voice in my head just said, oh, well, that all said, you know, that uh, things are bright and cheery here at Relevant Radio, and uh, which is quite literally these days a real work in progress. Our new center. Oh, I hear music reminding me I'm supposed to pray. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right. Let us go to the big book on the coffee table. Which I, I got to admit it. I, I find this reading very difficult. Um, I really do. Um, this is uh, the letter to the Hebrews, as I have said, is uh, it's kind of proto-Talmudic. Uh, that's a phrase I myself made up. But I explained Talmud to you the other day. And of course, we do not consider the Talmud inspired. It is very important to Orthodox Judaism. But the Talmud is a way of studying and thinking, which dissects each word in each situation. And that's what's going on into the letter the, in the letter of the Hebrews. And I believe that the letter to the Hebrews is well named because it was written to address the objections uh, that Orthodox Judaism has to uh, the Messiahship and more than that, the divinity of Jesus. In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the the part of the Bible that today's Orthodox Jews consider, uh, well, I suppose the word is infallible, inerrant. Uh, they were dictated uh, by God to Moses. And you say, well, even the parts about his death, yes, even the parts about his death. That is the, the attitude of most of the Orthodox Jews to whom I've spoken. So that given, this was true at the time of Christ, especially for Sadducees, but for Jews in general. If you say, if you're having a discussion with an Orthodox Jew about the faith, you'll say, well, in Isaiah it says, he may say, well, that's nice, but it's Isaiah. 
In other words, it isn't Torah. It isn't the first five books of the Bible. And um, uh, at the time of Christ, the Pharisees seemed to have had a, a greater reverence and interest in the books of uh, the non-Torah books of the Bible. Um, the, the Hebrew scriptures is, are divided by the Jews into three sections. You've got the law, then you've got the Kutabim, uh, the writings, and the Navim, the prophets. The law, the writings, and the prophets. Those are the three divisions, uh, uh, um, and they call it the Tanakh. But the Torah is absolutely um, infallible. So, in the Torah, resurrection and life after death are not mentioned. In the Torah, it is clear that that uh, the, the tribes are separate. The, the priests came from the tribe of Levi, uh, though this is a little later in, in, the, in the text of Scripture, uh, priests came from Levi and uh, um, kings came from the tribe of, of Judah. So that's intimated in certain parts of the Torah, uh, especially the kingship of, of the tribe of Judah. So uh, we have a priest-king Messiah. We have a dying and rising Messiah. And worst of all, we have a human and divine Messiah. And this is a tough sell from from Torah. So that's, I think, what I really believe. That's the point of the letter to the Hebrews, to encourage uh, Orthodox Christianity among uh, people who had accepted Christ. Now, there's an interesting line we're going to see at the end of this text about the gospel, uh, um, the, the, the belief that Christianity was a separate and new religion just wasn't there in, in the first century. This was the fulfillment, as far as Christians were concerned, it was the fulfillment of Judaism. At the time of Christ, there were all sorts of people who really liked the religion of the Jews, because it was reasonable. It was a wonderful moral law. Uh, it was uh, belief in one supreme being who who was in relationship to humanity. And it gave moral and, and, and spiritual hope to people. But there was that stuff about keeping kosher and circumcision, and you couldn't eat this, and you couldn't touch that, and you couldn't go there. Well, there were a lot of people who assisted at Jewish religious services, followed the Jewish, um, followed Jewish thought and and prayer, but they didn't follow the law of kashrut, of kosherness. These were called God fearers, and they were an area. This is the one time in history in which Judaism was interested in making converts. Judaism today is not really interested in making converts. You can convert to Judaism, but it's, it's, I've never known a rabbi who encouraged it. Uh, rabbi Lefkowitz used to say to people who wanted to, to convert to Judaism, say, go, be a good Christian. Um, so currently, we would not call uh, Judaism uh, an evangelistic religion or a proselyting religion, proselytizing religion, uh, as Christianity is and always has been. Um, but this was the one period in history where there was 
quite a bit of of <laughs> proselytism. That a proselyte is someone who comes into the religious faith. It's an odd sounding word, but well, conversion—that's what it means. So, uh, the the this was a, a real problem because Orthodox Jews saw Christianity as as heretical, and people were becoming Christians by the busload. Uh, Rodney Stark, Dr. Rodney Stark, of whom I've spoken before, um, has a wonderful, wonderful book called The Rise of Christianity, which is a book of sociology. It, it does hard sociology, looking at tombstones and inscriptions and all that sort of thing. And his belief is that, if I'm reading him correctly, the church was really quite small, uh, and and it was mostly what we would call Jewish. Most of the first Christians were, well... Jews, uh, this this is an interesting uh, thing that that we like to think of. Well, Pentecost happened. There's this new religion, Jude, uh, Christianity. That's not the way they thought of it. You know, they didn't all of a sudden sudden start singing bad hymns from the '60s and and uh, uh, and and uh, publishing parish bulletins. No, they they were they were Jews. They they practiced the religion of Israel. And so I think this is squarely where the letter to the Hebrews comes in. So let us be on our guard while the promise of entering into his rest remains. This is a quote from the 95th Psalm. I swore in my anger that I would never enter into, they shall not enter into my rest. What's, what's he mean there? This is, uh, the real word is encampment in Hebrew. It means rest, where you can stop the journey. Uh, um, so he's saying, uh, um, that that you, you gotta you gotta enter into his rest. That Christianity is the fulfillment of the religion of Israel. That's what he's saying there. And you can enter into his encampment, or you can fight it. There's a lot in the desert about his bo their bones bleached in the desert. Uh, you realize um, that of the of the multitude of people who left Egypt, uh, what was it? Uh, I forget the the, the numbers, uh, but it was it, the scriptures have it as as hundreds of thousands at least of men, um, that only only two of them entered the Holy Land. Do you realize that of all of the multitude that left Egypt, including Moses, only two entered the Promised Land? That's what this is about. What do you mean? Yeah, Joshua and Caleb. The rest, remember, they went up, and they saw giants in the land, and they said, "We're not doing it," and the Lord said, because of your rebellion, you'll wander in the desert until every last adult has died who left Egypt. And your children will enter the land. It was the children who entered the land and Joshua and Caleb. These were the only two because they said we can do it with, with God's help. Uh, um, and then the next day they changed their mind and said, well, we'll go up. And they were defeated because the opportunity that God had given them was done. So remember that. This is about, let us be on our guard while the promise of entering his rest remains. This is, the idea of entering his rest is crossing over uh, the Jordan into the, into the promised land. That's his encampment. And, and the, this was a, a, a migrating people. So while the promise of entering his encampment remains, uh, which is what the word is in Hebrew in the 95th Psalm. So I swore in my Wrath, they shall not enter into my encampment. Now, in fact, we have received the good news just as our ancestors did. 
In the Greek text, we have been evangelized, just as our ancestors were. The good news is Evangelion. A, a dear friend called me the other day and said uh, that um, Jesus is saying, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel hadn't been written yet. Wait, 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 wait. The gospel is not a written text. Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think I also said the other day that uh, Matthew, Luke, and John don't even claim to be gospels. The gospel of Mark does claim, it does say the the gospel, the evangelion of Jesus the Messiah. Well, what's an evangelion? An evangelion is a spoken thing. It is the 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 good pronouncement of the king. It's a it's a legal document. It's a it's a royal document that that uh, the king um, would or the the monarch whoever was in charge would send a messenger to town and and he would read from the scroll, but it had to be spoken. It, Angelos is an announcement. That's what it is. It's a it's a it's it's a pronouncement. And El means a good or well, the well pronounced. And they would say, we have just defeated our enemy in battle, huzzah. You know, that, that that's an evangelion. And what's what's this this royal pronouncement of, of good tidings? Uh, the kingdom of God has drawn near. That's what it is. And that means Jesus. Jesus is God's royalness. Jesus is the exemplar of what God is like. That, that in a sense, the good the good pronouncement is Jesus. Have you ever thought the beginning of the gospel of John it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate statement about his own nature. Jesus himself is the good news. Well, so what are those four things? Those are, well, they are gospels. I mean, the Holy Spirit has used them as gospels, but they are, uh, they are the, 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 the canon of scriptures. You know, the Bible, strictly speaking, now remember, be careful with what I say. The, strictly speaking, the Bible is not the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The Bible is the canon of scriptures. So they had received, uh, uh, an, they, had been, they had been good news. Uh, uh, we have received good news, uh, uh, just as our ancestors did. You mean the, 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 the Israelites had... Yeah, they had the royal pronouncement of God's love. It came in its fullness in the person of Jesus, but uh, you know, they God spoke to them prophetically. And I remember uh, talking to a Jewish friend uh, who, uh, very interestingly, she she loved the Eucharist and she believed wholeheartedly in the Eucharist, but she couldn't bring herself to be baptized because of of the prejudice that 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 has gone back and forth between Jews and non-Jews you know that that um we have a sorry history for the past millennium of of our relationship to Jews and of course in the 20th century you know and to be baptized is 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 unthinkable for for many people who are israelites or Jews uh but on the other hand uh, i have known orthodox Jews who really think that we we hate them i mean i was i was raised to love and respect jews we we lived in a home it was very catholic and my father always worked with jews i mean the idea of of anti-semitism was unthinkable for us um so uh, there's this mutual kind of suspicion but as i said earlier the the, the first christians were what we would consider jewish 
And it wasn't until about 132 A.D., uh, the final war, uh, the Bar Kokhba re Rebellion, that the two groups really definitively separated. Uh, so huh, this is this is an interest. Well, let me let me let me go on. So, the, oh, I was talking about the good news. Jesus himself is the good news. He's the good pronouncement. All right. Uh, these people who say, well, the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. No, the God of the New Testament swears in his wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. There's the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, he is the God whom I worship. All right, um, let's see. Well, let's go to the gospel. I, I've got a minute to do the gospel. I, I just... Uh, Oh, good grief. Oh, I got to I got to do this. This also has to do with the law. Oh, the Torah. good grief. Good grief. Amen. Charlie Brown. So, uh, child, your sins are forgiven. They lower a paralytic into the into the they, they rip off the the roofing material, be it tiles or thatch or whatever it was. They rip off the, the roofing uh, material and uh, lo and behold, they lower this. This paralytic down, I will never forget. We we had before we got an elevator in at St. Lambert's. We had this precipitous stairwell. The pastor who had put it in when he saw the stairway said, "What was I thinking?" We had a great hall, wonderful hall, but it took quite a bit of work to get down and up from it. Um, well, there was we were having a lecture, and this fellow in a wheelchair had come to the lecture, and some enthusiastic young men grabbed the wheelchair and and carried him down into the hall the look of terror on that man's face was was it was it was awful i mean can you imagine this poor paralytic guy who's being lowered down in the roofing tiles he really was trusting them and he was trusting jesus uh uh when Jesus saw their trust, their faith, he said to them, Child, your sins are forgiven. Above all, that, that paralytic was trusting his friends and trusting Jesus. Uh, so the scribes are sitting there. Now, scribes were people who were experts in the law. They copied the Torah and they knew it well. Uh, sometimes that's translated lawyers. In a sense, they were. They were legal experts. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there asking themselves, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming, but who alone can forgive sins? Now, I said yesterday that I think the purpose of the Gospel of Mark, which we are reading, is to prove the divinity of Christ. And here's an example. God alone can forgive sins. The sacrifices of the old law did not forgive sin. They reconciled one to God. They atoned for sin. They put you back in the shape, back in the condition in which you could pray. Only God could forgive sins. The sacrifice, you read that in Leviticus, the sacrifices of the law did not forgive sins. This is a unique thing about Christianity, our radical idea for the forgiveness of sins. So uh, God forgave sins and the individual could repent, but that wasn't what the sacrificial order was about. The sacrificial order atoned only for unknowing and unwilling infractions of the law. Of the of the sacrificial dietary and ritual law, so forgiveness of sin was not even the property of the temple and the sacrificial order and 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 the sacrificing priests. Well, Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man, which is this this celestial being from the Book of Daniel, says he has authority to forgive sins on earth. Pick up your mat.
and go home. And everyone was amazed. So this is another instance, I think, in the Gospel of Mark, in which uh, Mark is demonstrating the divinity of Christ by his power to forgive sin. All right, that said, let's go to a break. We'll come back with letters. We're going to open the phones at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. I hope that was sufficiently obscure. I bet it was. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash Dallas. This train is bound to glory, this train. This train is bound to glory, this train. This train is bound to Nobody rides it but the righteous and the holy. Good luck with that. I don't know that I want to get on the train. At any rate, I'll just run behind it. And what am I talking about? Let's go to letters. Well, you know, the ongoing question about... about uh, um, Computers. I, I got a wonderful uh, note from Jim, the the uh, the physicist, the other day, uh, who mentioned that um, uh, he thought Saint Barbara would be a good patron. Uh, yeah, we did. But he he uh, he he mentions that well, maybe it's a lack of sanctity on his part that he wants to blow computers up. But we've all been there, Jim. Don't worry about it. You know. Uh, Let's see here. $5,000 for a computer, and it can't handle a simple assignment. Oh, this is a question. Do I want to jump into this one now? I think so. Why not? This is from Lon in Denver, Colorado. Um, the, the, uh, they're not Catholic, um, but they walk their dog uh, and, and, and listen to me, and the dog seems to enjoy the walks, too. So, yes, dogs and small children. <laughs> Who's what they say about W. C. Field? Any man who can't stand dogs and children can't be all bad. That's uh, W. C. Field didn't say that. They said it about him. All right, moving along. Uh, the past year, so we detected the, the theme "Water in the Wind" occasionally makes its way into your messages. The, he's referring to my digression on uh, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. That that water in the spirit. We all know what that means. Water in the spirit. If you're Catholic, it means uh, the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. If you're evangelical, it means getting baptized by immersion and then getting prayed for for the baptism in the Holy Ghost. And you got to get baptized before you get the Holy Ghost. I mean, it's we got these rules that you got to follow. And I point out that that. The text is a little less rigid in Greek than we would like it to be, because the word for water is, of course, water. But the word for spirit, we translate it spirit. And, of course, we know the spirit is spirit is that third person, the Trinity, who looks like a bird uh, or, or a fire. And the Holy Spirit is not a bird. The Holy Spirit is not a flame. These, these, these are 
things we use to symbolize the Holy Spirit. As you know from listening, if you listen to me at all, the word spirit in Greek is pneuma. It means breath or wind. That's what it means, isn't to get the wind knocked out of you. So pneuma, it, it means wind. So if you were reading that passage in Greek and didn't have the either Protestant or Catholic prejudice about what it meant, you would look and say, unless a man is born from above. The word is anothen, which means take it from the top. It can mean a repetition, but it really means born from above. Unless you're born from above of water and wind, you cannot see, and then again, my translation, you'll forgive me, God's royalness. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, you, that means you can't go to heaven unless you're baptized and confirmed. No, that's not what it says. Uh, you can't go to heaven unless you can't be saved unless you're dunked uh, by immersion and get baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Nope, that's not what it means. You, you must be born from above. A new kind of nature that comes from water and wind. Okay, so what, what, what's he driving at? This is poetry. This isn't a rule book. This is poetry. Now, of course, the early church baptized in water and anointed people in prayer for the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. These are things you got to do. I'm not saying that this passage doesn't say that, but it's approaching these things very poetically and very beautifully. So, what are water and wind? The disciples knew all about water and wind. A great number of them were fishermen. And water and wind can be gentle and beautiful and life-giving, or they can be destructive. If you've ever been in a beautiful spring, warm spring rain with a gentle breeze, uh, and you think of Gene Kelly singing Walking in the Rain, how lovely. If you've ever been in a hurricane, you're terrified. Water and wind. And I, I look at that and I think that, that the nature that we receive from God when he gives us new life is, it, it means that we are as re responsive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, of the, the breath of God, as water is responsive to the wind. That, that we have a new, a new experience. And the word is from above. Anothen is unless you're born anothen, from, from above. And Nicodemus says, can a man enter his uh, mother's womb? Uh, Pali is the Greek word, meaning again. Uh, uh, and uh, Jesus says, you're not understanding what I'm saying. That, that there's a, a type of life which is, which is spiritual. It, it, it rests on the breath of God and not on all of these um, cause and effect. Uh, now you see it, now you don't kind of rock solid, I'm a realist stuff. I'm not encouraging people not to be realists. Um, we live in the world and we live in the Lord. But the idea of being born again, I, well, oh, I, I knew this is going to take time. Well, the the uh, my favorite theologian, the Reverend Billy Bob, <laughs> I joke, but his name was Bob, and he had a nice southern accent. Uh, oh, 
uh, no, not Billy Bob Thornton. No, no, the voice in my head just questioned about Billy Bob Thornton. No, it's, it was, I don't want to mention the, the name of this fellow, but I, I learned so much from him. He wasn't very, very big on Catholicism or established religion, but his approach to Scripture is really I found fascinating. I learned a great deal from him. So that said, the Reverend Bob, I'll call him, uh, he said that he worked in... Uh, um, uh, when he was in the in the in the navy, he worked as a medical assistant, and he assisted at lots of live births. And when he everybody talks about being born again, you got to be born again, born again. I'm born again, hallelujah. I gave my life to Jesus, and I'm born again. He said nobody understands being born again. Not Protestants, not Catholics. He said, and I would have said, well, we Catholics, of course we do. We understand it. We just don't always know we understand it. But I, again, I digress. He said, nobody comes into this world except kicking and screaming and leaking. Birth is a very difficult experience, both for the mother and for the child. Um, the, the, the idea of, of being born again is leaving a place of security to a place of exposure and growth and, well, danger. Think about it. You were alive for nine months before you were born. You were alive for nine months before you were born. And when people have this ecstatic experience and realize God loves them, that's not being born again. That's spiritual conception. And conception is meant to be ecstatic both in spirit and in flesh. That's spiritual conception. Being born again, that's a tough gig. It means leaving the place of comfort and safety for a place of exposure and insecurity. So I thought that was just a profound thing. So this idea of being born of water and the spirit is, is, is you're conceived spiritually when you come to know Christ as Lord and, and uh, um, in whatever way that happens to you. But you are born again of water and the spirit when you enter into a world of, of, of serving the Lord. You know, I, I think, you know, uh, I think of St. Peter, who um, I just, my imagination, you know, either in Antioch, probably in Antioch, maybe in Caesarea, he would have looked at the boat on which he was going to be taken to Rome. And he would have looked at the water and the Jews originally were not much of a maritime people. He would have thought back to the storms on the Sea of Galilee. He would have thought back to Jesus asleep in the boat. And when the sail was filled with wind and off across the water, they sped to adventures unknown and eventually to his death in the, in the, uh, in the circus of, of Caligula, uh, um, the racetrack of Caligula. He must have thought, you must be born again of water and wind. St. Paul, who spent much of his time sitting, as the song goes, on the dock of the bay, waiting for a ship that would take him to Cyprus, where he could find a ship that would take him to Antioch, where he could find a ship that would take him down the coast to Caesarea Maritima. Wind and water. These were people who lived life on the water in large measure. And they lived at the disposal of the wind. You must be born from above. You must be born of wind and water. In other words, are you going to obey me? I, I think that, you know, this is, this is um, the idea. I'm born again. What do you mean you're born again? Uh, maybe you're stillborn. Maybe Christ gave you life 
offered you life and then when it came time to enter into the service of God and to be to be blown about on the water to be born from above of wind and water maybe you said no all right we're going to go to a break and we will come back with letters uh, oh we just did letters didn't we oh uh, we'll come back with the word of the day oh. Oh, 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. I'm singing in the rain. Just singing in the rain. What a glorious This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com Some days a diamond Some days a stone Sometimes a heart Nice song for February. Nonsense. We're all aware that the spring will come. God willing. Okay, moving along. Let us go now to the word of the day. Gong, bong, bong. Yes, that, that's that's what's passing for a gong. All right. Jesus immediately knew in his mind what they were thinking to themselves when they're saying, "Who but God can forgive sins." And he said, why are you thinking such things in your hearts? What? Thinking such things in your hearts? Uh, I don't understand. I didn't think you thought in your heart. You felt in your heart. Nope. He says, it's very interesting. The word in Greek is, is, um, is to reason, to debate. Dialogizomai. It means to thoroughly reckon up. It means to evaluate something thoroughly. You know, when you say something popular, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He, this, this reasoning process, this process of thorough reasoning is going on in the heart, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, what does it mean? The heart, the cardia, in Greek means the deepest part of you, who you really are. And you know, every once in a while, it gets revealed to you who you really are. Um, what would be a good example of that? Um, um, oh, I would never, ever have an abortion. Well, or permit an abortion, or assist an abortion. Well, your kid gets pregnant and she's 15. Well, let's think about that. the re revealing of your heart is part of the purpose of temptation. You follow what I mean here? You get put in a difficult situation and who knows what you will do. We talked about a, f a word of the day a few uh, days ago was confession, which means to agree. Why does God allow us to be tempted? God allows us to be tempted so that we might know what is in our hearts. What is in my heart? I think I know what's in my heart, 
It's the testing that reveals to me what is in my heart. Why are you in your deepest inner self arguing with yourselves about these things? So when when the Bible says heart, it doesn't mean this overwhelming emotional thing. You know, we Americans like to think of ourselves as hard-headed, reasonable, or rational. We're the most romantic people going. I don't love you anymore, so I'm getting a divorce. I don't feel love. So, you know, if we don't feel it, it isn't real. Nonsense. The heart when talked about in the scripture, isn't just about feeling. It's about the deepest part of you. And um, I just thought that was interesting when I noticed that. All right, let's go to, let's go to phones. There is something the matter with your phone. Again, I think we will be able to take a few calls at 888-914-9149. And here we have a call from Chuck in Melbourne, Florida. How are we doing, Chuck? What yeah, can hi. I do for you? Hey, Father Tommy. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, real quick background, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with understanding uh, Mary, uh, the Mother Mary. Yes. Uh, I grew up yes. Southern Baptist. Uh, I've been through yep. non, you know, non-denominational Protestantism, and about seven uh, years ago came to the Catholic faith. Uh, my wife is Catholic, uh, and, and I, I just love being Catholic now more than anything in the Eucharist. Uh, but I still struggle because I don't understand uh, Mary, uh, and I don't understand the 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 rosary, because when I try to pray it, I feel as though um, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know, being sacrilegious almost yeah. sometimes, because yeah. Christ, you know, Jesus and, and our, whole, our advocate is the Holy Spirit, and, yes. and through Christ, and so I struggle with that, but I want to know more, I want to understand. So that's my question. Well, I, can you help you, me better you, uh, you, understand? Yes, you come to the right person. Because I warred with these things. I was raised in a very traditional Catholic home, devotion to the Blessed Mother, the whole thing. And then I went to the seminary where in the 60s, so that was, we don't do that anymore. And, and uh, then I got involved with the Pentecostal movement, which morphed into the charismatic movement. And, uh, you know, so I lived on kind of the cusp of things evangelical. And I would like to first say that I personally think that evangelicals make the best Catholics because they think about these things and they've actually read the big book on the coffee table once or twice. So now all that said, what's the deal about Mary? Well, have you ever considered, uh, you know, it, it, it starts with the church that we think of the church as an organization, Church is not an organization. We look at her, at, her, at her as an organization. The father looks at her as a wife, a bride, a mother, a family. Uh, uh, the bride prepared from all time for his son Jesus. And the early Christians had this strange belief that the church was the first of God's creations, not the universe. Before there were any people in the church, the church existed. Uh, uh, when you think of her as the bride, you know, you take that word out as the bride. Now, when history happened and, and the time was fulfilled for the coming of, of, of God's Son into the world, the first person to accept Christ, quite literally, was this young girl from the old royal family of David, a girl named Mary in the town of Nazareth. She accepted Christ into her life very literally and she was faithful to him at the foot of the cross and she was there at Pentecost now we believe that the church is holy we talk about the marks of the church one holy Catholic and apostolic the church is holy 
If you're looking at me and you think I'm the church, you're going to be disappointed because I'm not that holy. This idea of the merits of the saints, the communion of the saints, that the holiness of the church is guaranteed by those who have followed Christ unreservedly. And the first member of the church was given a unique gift of holiness. She was she was saved by Christ. She was she she did she needed salvation. But we talk about prevenient grace that God, in a sense, borrowed from Calvary to give her the fullness of human nature so that she could be the first member of the church. And thus, it would be a holy church, even if sinners like me joined it later. So she is the icon, the image of the church. And now for 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 Protestants, church is kind of optional. You know, I go into the woods to pray on Sunday. I really feel that no, we don't do that. We believe the church really is a family, a relationship, because God is a relationship. But when you consider that Mary, the princess of the house of David, was the first person to say yes to Christ and the first member of the church. There was a time in history when the church had one member. It was a member who chose holiness, who accepted that gift from God, the gift of holiness. And so that's why we honor her uniquely. Does, okay, that's that's part one. Does that help a little? Um, yeah, I mean, I understand that. It, it's just yeah. that, um, uh, and I get her special place with, but, you know, uh, when Paul talks about our, our advocate through to God is, is the Holy Spirit oh, who yeah. prays well, for, with what, with groanings yes, that are unknown yes. and that we can go directly to the Father yeah. through Christ. Oh, our, of course. Of so, course. But, so that's you know, what I, think of. I, I think the the big difference between Protestantism and Catholicism as it's developed isn't the Pope. It isn't in a sense. It isn't even our devotion to the Blessed Mother. It's the idea of the communion of saints. Jesus said what I have done, you will do in greater that we really are. Even, even though by adoption, we really are sons and daughters of God. And God wants us to do what Jesus does, not independent of him, but in union with him. And this idea of the merits of the saints, which uh, most most Protestants find that very difficult. And I, I remember struggling with that idea that that they are images, in a sense, of the Messiah. And and with him, they 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 intercede. So, you know, G, the Holy Spirit's not the only advocate. Jesus calls himself the advocate. And if Jesus is the ad, is an advocate, which literally means attorney for the defense. That's what the word means in Greek, uh, the paraclete. He calls himself another uh, uh, a paraclete. He's an advocate too. And if Jesus is an advocate, I'm an advocate, you know. And Mary is an advocate par excellence because of because of this communion of saints. So there there are untold gazillions of advocates, as many as there are uh, uh, Christian believers. Uh, so this idea of, of well, Jesus only, uh, that that isn't a biblical idea. That's why Jesus said, it's better for me that I leave, that, because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit can't come. He wanted Matthew to relate to to to, to Peter, to, to relate to Thomas. And as long as he was there, he'd have to do the refereeing. So he left us in the physical sense, except for the Eucharist. But he gave us the Holy Spirit that we might be advocates for one another as he is an advocate for us. So this 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 idea of the communion of saints, now, I, I got to look at my, my time here. Oh, and I'm not, I'm not bad. But now, does, does that does that resonate a little bit with you there? 
Yeah, I, it, it does some. I mean, the, the communion of the saints, uh, and I get, yeah. I, I understand that because I think of it deeply. Uh, I, I lost my son. My son died two years ago, oh, and, and I think you. of that. Um, yeah. And I think of him, and I think of the saints, and I think of uh, Mother Mary, and I think of these things, and, and, and I try to uh, understand them deeper, you know, not just superficially yeah. and, yeah. and hand-waving and, and just accept it. Uh, you know, you said something yeah. earlier that Protestants uh, make better Catholics, and it's something that when I took on this uh, journey, um, I actually took it on to, to disprove a friend of mine, a Navy buddy of mine. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a Navy, we were, I'm retired Navy, but yeah. to disprove Catholicism to him because he was Catholic and wound up actually coming to Catholicism and realizing that it, that, that, that this is real. This is the real place. And I just, I, 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 I need to know, you know, I searched deep, the, I searched deeply into the catechism and yeah. deeply into into scripture to better understand. So I, so I, I don't take it. I don't just say, Oh, okay. I just believe yeah. it randomly. I, I, I just, I need, I want deep well, knowledge, understanding. That's because you're a disciple. Golly gee, who knew? Well, now I'm not quite <laughs> done. The rosary. Oh right. dear, the rosary. Oh, good grief. It just sounds like idolatry to an evangelical. The yeah. rosary, <laughs> you know, I, one of the things I think that 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 uh, even evangelical Protestants and Pentecostals are a little better about it, but but uh, the idea that we really are living in a spiritual world, um, you know, classical Protestantism, uh, Luther and Calvin both believed the age of they were strict dispensationalists, and the age of miracles was over. You paid, prayed, and obeyed. That was it. Uh, and then the Pentecostals come along and. If in 1950 you had asked an American what two religions were most unlike your own, asked an American Protestant, they would have said Pentecostalism and Catholicism, because Pentecostalism was kind of a, a revival of the miraculous tradition of Catholicism. And Orthodox Protestants, you know, it's just, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, the the and now Catholics pretty much have the same idea, uh, um, you know. But but we live in this spiritual world, and it's a spiritual reality, and. I learned this from an exorcist. I've never been an exorcist, thank God, but I have assisted at exorcisms, and boy, it is amazing how the person who is uh, afflicted just get. I've, I've seen it happen quite a number of times that, that they get all hinky when somebody's saying the Hail Mary. And that's because, I, I don't know if you've ever uh, read C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, they're amazing. I have but not, no. better, Better than reading them is look up John Cleese of Monty Python and Fish Called Wanda. Oh, yeah, I love John reading Cleese. them. Oh, he reads them. Uh, you can get it on YouTube. You just do John Cleese Screw Tape Letters One YouTube, and you'll you'll get it. And okay. it's uh, it's he's great. I mean, he portrays the devil as an English bureaucrat. It's really really funny, but uh, but it's very <laughs> profound. But he he uh, um, you know that that he points out that. You know, people say, well, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. The devil's a pure spirit. The devil's very spiritual. <laughs> and that's the problem. The devil hates matter, and he hates children, and he hates uh, a legitimate intimacy between a man and a woman. He, he hates fertile marriage. He wants sterile relationships. Uh, and the Hail Mary is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a prayer that is quoting Scripture and reminding the devil that the human body is sacred, especially a woman's body. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
the devil cannot stand that. And I have seen that happen in exorcism. So if you think of the rosary as kind of a, a thing, I'm, I'm going to sit for a while and, and worship the Blessed Mother. No, you're joining her in spiritual warfare. The devil is, I, so many people refer to, to, to the rosary as your sword because it's talking about the word who is Jesus. So the rosary is a matter of spiritual warfare, not, not just, uh, uh, you know, I always call it Catholic praying in tongues, but uh, uh, it's verbal <laughs> non-mental prayer. But it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a powerful, powerful reminder using the words of Scripture to the devil that, that God loves human flesh and God loves uh, uh, human intimacy when it is legitimate and appropriate. Uh, one more little thought about this. The second part, Hail Mary or Holy Mary, mother of God, that idea, well, you were saying Mary's superior to God. No, that's the council of Chalcedon about 500 AD that says there were people who said, well, Mary's the mother of the humanity of Jesus, not of the divinity. No humanity and divinity are inseparably married in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot separate them. There will be no divorce. Mary is the mother of the whole Christ, human and divine. So this idea of the mother of God is really about the nature of Jesus, that he is human and divine inseparably and eternally. Uh, so so the, the Hail Mary is a beautiful prayer that is about spiritual warfare. So I've given you some things to think about there. I hope that helps a little. Yeah, yeah, it does. I I continue to search. I continue to, yeah, to, well, to this try is good. to absorb more. Yep, yep. You so, say I trust, right, well, Lord, you help my much. lack of trust. Well, God bless, and I thanks for listening patiently. Let's go to Michael uh, from uh, Panorama City, California. What can I do for you, Michael? Hello, sir. Hello, Prof. Um, Father Simon. Yeah, as always, thanks for always interesting and informative um, program. Okay, I'll try to be quick. Another time. Basically, a lot of a lot of Christian speakers talk about the immortal soul without giving mm-hmm. biblical references. And even yes. a recent guest on on relevant radio talk about said that the a soul is created at the moment. An immortal soul is created at the moment of conception. So my question is. Would God tell immortal souls they shall surely die if they eat the forbidden fruit? And would God put a and God put a flaming, you know, sword and angel to block the tree, saying, "Lest they should eat and live forever." So, if they are yes. already immortal, would they live forever? Well, would they? We we have a problem here because you see, uh, Jesus says when he's talking about he's proving using a Torah text, life after death. He says to the Sadducees that that uh, uh, to God all are alive. So when we think of the endurance of time, we think of dying and being born and at the moment. Those those things are not uh, uh, those things are not uh, part of part of the discussion of God's nature. God is eternal and timeless. I always say for Him, every place is here, every moment is now. And so looking at uh, um, that idea that to God all are alive, nothing can die. However, what is death? Death is the darkness, the darkness, the outer darkness where there is complete alienation from God. That's what death is. Death is not a ceasing to exist, it is ceasing to be in right relationship to God. Well, speaking of right relationship, Drew is coming up and there's lots of people in right relationship because that, that Divine Mercy Chaplet is great. Thank you.